Well, howdy, everyone. This is Geology on the Rocks, and I am your host, James the Geologist. And I am Brian Baggin. Hey, man. Hello. How are you? I like that intro music, dude. Like, yeah. Like, ah, but I don't know. <laughs> okay, so, I, so we finally, everyone out there listening, we have finally done our That Freaking Rocks. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> we did. Stumbling. Yeah. I don't want to stumble out of the gate, but I feel like I just did. But no, so we finally did it, but I was going through my stuff, and I was, hold on one second. Do you want to hear the, the other part to that? Yeah. Okay, hold on. You ready? Oh, man, where is it? Okay. <laughs> I, I titled this one Wanking. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Wah! Reminds me of Happy Time. <laughs> dude, I don't know what I was like. I don't know. You're ripping, dude. Yeah, here's the, here's, shredding, here's the wanking. <laughs> <laughs> so... Oh, man. So that was fun. It brought me back a little bit. So yeah. it has been another week, man. So how have you been? I've been good. I uh, finally felt stupid in geology. So I like had to figure out some geochemical models and stuff. And I today finally hit rock bottom. And I was like, I don't know. Is that, so is that, is that, a, pu- that. a pun intended? Yeah, it, it was. Thank you. See, I, I can do them sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they're not on purpose sometimes, either. Yeah, I, I, I feel like <laughs> I, if you say them enough, if you're like somebody in office and you say something enough, people will start to believe it. And even yourself probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So, so yeah, I had to. Oh, sorry. Go oh, ahead. no, no. I was just going to say tomorrow is going to be pretty interesting. Uh, hmm. Good Lord. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't. And I've. I'm and I'm not sure. I just I don't know if anyone else out there feels it, but I just have like all this anxiety, <laughs> and I want it to I go do away. Too. I'm horrified. Like <laughs> legit, just want it to be over one way or the other, right? But yeah. I feel like you and I, I've seen some of your uh, your Snapchat, yeah. so I feel like we're on the same page, like without <laughs> saying it so. out loud. <laughs> yeah. So um, now everyone's curious, and we're never going to tell you. No, because it's 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 none of your business. No, get out of here. <laughs> so we're on <laughs> to episode nine. Finally. Finally, woo! So I, I named yeah. this one. Sorry, I, I, I know. Last week I said that we titled it. Uh, what was it? <laughs> Something with shale in it. Uh, oh, if you yeah. ask and you shall receive, we're, we'll get back to that one. But I ended up. I guess changing it because I because something that we said during the episode like was I thought was hilarious was the rural shoral. But anyways, that uh, was hilarious. <laughs> what I named this one was three six nine the rock drink wine. I don't know where that comes from and why it came to me, but have you heard that that? Because it's that one song that I don't know. Yeah, who, but I think, who sings that? I'm not sure. But it's like, no, I'm not sure, but it's like three six nine the goose drink wine the monkey chewed tobacco. Oh, on the... you're thinking of a different song. <laughs> no, it's not a song. I think I'm it's thinking... like a little lyrical, like a oh. Something. I was thinking of this rap song from like nineties or two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense, but anyways, it it, it uh, but in in total, it was three six nine the rock drink wine and the moon got tangled in a telephone line because today mm. we are finally going to. I think we're going to wrap up some loose ends. We're going to talk about uh, tidal forces. We're going to talk about the big one. We're going to get back to that listener question that we never got to end up answering because we typically have gone long in a lot of our episodes. And then we got in another interesting one is we got a another email from a listener in Ohio. So we're going to be talking a little bit about Yosemite Valley in yeah. California and part of the Sierra Nevada Batholith, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then since we have um, our, our song up and going, we are actually going to... Uh, debut our own little collaboration that is eight bars. <laughs> I know. 
I'm so excited. Let's get I there. Too. And then in the middle of the episode, we have another treat for you. And we're going to see if you can figure out what is different. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. All right. So we've talked about that recap. So moving forward. So today we're going to we're going to start our conversation off with tidal forces. And then so we're going to talk about just uh, in general, we're just going to have gentle musings and conversations about what causes tides. How do tides vary during monthly tidal cycles? What do tides look like in the ocean? What types of tidal patterns exist or tidal phenomenon occur in coastal regions? So there's a cool one with uh, the fishies. And then can tidal power uh, be harnessed as a source of energy? Because that's kind of important yeah. as we move along. Do you remember the uh, story time with Brian? Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that thing? Yeah. I just recalled something just now off the top of my head of explanation of tides. So you can do your little chime uh, uh, sound. I don't know how to get back to it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> uh, all right. So I don't know what that accent was either. So, so. Uh, <laughs> story time with Brian. In Norse mythology, the, everyone knows the god Thor. He got bribed to take part in a drinking contest. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, yeah, it does. And when you think of these Viking gods, like it's like, holy crap. But the person that I cannot recall who it was, they ended up tying Thor's horn, I think it was like an ox horn or something like that, into the sea. And so he thought he was having to keep up and drink all this, but he could never finish. And so what happened is because even though he lost, he basically the ocean went in and it was like, you know what? The ocean is alive and it is now going to at least pay respects to Thor by showing this movement of his drinking through his flask. And that's where the tides come in. So the tides come in with him drinking and then they go back out when he like takes a breath. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, 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 that's kind of, I, but I think that's that's awesome in that uh, let's let's close it off with stories by Brian. It's so hard. I'm doing like three things at once right now. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah. so like uh, I know we've talked we alluded to it when we talked about volcanoes too. How mm-hmm. how before before we had an understanding. There's I I feel like a lot of these have some sort of kind of mythology to kind of explain it away because right. So how would you explain the tidal like tides in general like without any kind of prior knowledge to that right so it's like if you were to look in the sky in like okay let's let's go let's go back to the the plains of africa when we you know we're early on in being the plains down here. <laughs> <laughs> so like imagine if if you were to look up to the sky and you were to see an eclipse like what that would scare the bejesus out of me if i didn't know Dude. what was going on yeah. the so, gods are coming to like wreak havoc is what i would think that's where we're going to start our conversation today. So I would say that most are pretty familiar with the fact that the moon is going to influence tides. So I know there's that kind of that there's some general basis to people knowing that the moon affects the tides. But I think many are going to be surprised to learn that the sun also has an effect. So we see that it, it does have some type of gravitational pull and affects the the tides going in and out. going to try in this next little segment to emphasize that while the sun is more massive, right, you would expect for it to have a greater gravitational pull but the moon due to it just being so much closer and therefore it's going to just have an influence over the tides a lot more yeah and like the sun much greater mass than the moon i don't really remember maybe you can remember how how much greater it is in mass than the moon and the earth but it's also so much further away and as the distance increases between objects the gravitational force 
will greatly decrease. And so even though the sun has a much bigger mass, it's so much further away, so it's going to have a lot less influence on our tidal forces here on Earth. Yeah, so it's 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 about half half as much as the uh, the moon. If we can look at this question if we approach it in just a different way from a mathematical perspective. I don't know how well this is going to yeah. go over. Go, yeah. uh, but I'm just going to say numbers, and you're just going to uh, agree with me. Yes, nod my head and drink <laughs> my drink. So we're going to oh, yeah. so Wait. we're going to we're going to think of the the oh yeah. Brian, I heard what you were saying. So uh, I, I told you we're, I was doing like 10 things at once. So it's a, it's a madhouse if you were to look at my perspective. But we would like to uh, say cheers to our listeners. Cheers to you, Brian. Roast. Roast. Oh, man, we should have gotten some sort of Thor kind of didn't in one, of the, know, one I, of the Avenger I, movies because he was he drank in the last one quite a bit. Right. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was a geologist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I'm going to take a sip. I'm going to take a, a sip of whiskey and I'm going to explain to you numbers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, mathematically perspective. So the tide generating influence of a body on Earth, right? It's going to be proportional to the mass, but it's going to be inversely proportional to the cube of the distance from Earth. Uh, the weight or the mass, if you will, of the moon is going to be approximately 7.3 times 10 to the 19th power tons. So, Lord. yeah, but I mean, that pales in comparison to the sun's yeah. mass. <laughs> well, okay, so that one was to the 19th power. So the sun's mass is going to be 2.0 times 10 to the 27th. So that's, that's you know, it's 20 with 27 more zeros after it. So the, the sun is huge. If we take it, as proportions so we're going to divide that 2.0 times 10 to the 27th by the the moon's math uh mass not math you're going to get 2.74 times 10 to the 7th which is uh 27.4 million yeah math is over here saying that the sun's over 27 million times as effective is that is that what the equation is saying that's what it's saying yeah okay wow so you're absolutely right the people that figured this out i mean like just thinking about it i know it's once you you read numbers off and stuff it's like oh yeah okay and you just take that but i i get blown away by the people that come up with these things right but that i mean like that's what should be assumed right based on math i meant mass yeah. mass of the two objects another way of looking at it is going to be that the moon is on average about three hundred ninety-one thousand kilometers away from earth while the yeah. sun is going to be let me see if i if i'm reading this number right it's 149 million seven hundred and fifty-eight thousand kilometers from earth when we're taking this proportion we need to keep in mind that the the mass is going to be offset by that distance by that cube yeah. if, if it's that 149 million 758 thousand distance wise from earth and then we divide that by the distance that the moon is of that about 384 thousand this shows that the sun is 389.1 times farther away from the earth and the moon. I hope I did my math right. And then the cube of 389.1 is going to be, let's just say 59 million. So comparing the two tide producing factors, this gives us 27 million divided by 59 million. So we've wound our way back. And then that's 0.46 times um, 100. So that's 46%. Basically what that's saying is due to the mass and the distance compared to the two, we did the proportional 
It's the sun is only 46% as effective as the moon in generating the tides here on Earth. Which are what we observe as like ocean tides. Yeah, exactly. So the tide generating forces are going to be this combination of uh, altogether the the centripetal force, the gravitational attraction of the moon, and this uh, resultant force from these acting all together in unison. Good old Isaac Newton. <laughs> <laughs> Pow, look at you. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's interesting, it's all tied to gravity that the tides can be explained by this mathematical concept. And gravitational attraction of the sun and moon on Earth creates these tides and a more, I guess, complete analysis reveals that they are caused by not only just gravity, but also the motion on the of the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. Yeah, so I, th- I think uh, Newton's work on this quantifying of the forces involved in the Earth-Moon system, it, it led to this understanding of the underlying forces that keep the, I guess, the, the, the bodies in orbit around each other. So let's take the Earth and the Moon. So we are commonly told that the that the Moon just simply uh, revolves around Earth, right? So I mean, I think that's what we yeah. all assume. But that, I mean, that's only part of the truth. Or, I mean, if you've watched Impractical Jokers, it's the, uh, <laughs> That's only somewhat true. So these two bodies are actually going to, they rotate around a common center of mass. And this is what we call the Barry Center. And it comes from the, I, I always get confused. Are they, the, are they Latin or? I think so. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's like Barris is heavy and center is center. <laughs> so this yeah. is Barry Center. So it's this, it's, it's this kind of this balance point between uh, the systems and this, where it is on earth is actually going to be about uh, a thousand miles miles beneath the surface so it's yeah and we were kind of talking about it like the moon like imagine it on a long stick connected to the earth and then imagine a sledgehammer the head is a lot heavier mm-hmm. so if you were to balance the sledgehammer with its like handle sticking out to one side you find that the balance point is within the head of the hammer no i get what you're saying and, yeah <laughs> I, i'm like i'm trying to in your head i, yeah, I yeah. got a little sidetracked in my head because i remember at lowe's when i used to work there we used to be like wonder how like <laughs> If you can balance this sledgehammer, like, are you strong enough? Like, God. Yeah, but you can even, so if you look at a pen, like, kind of with its cap on, too, like, where you uh, balance it is kind of off. It's not in the center due to the, just the, the simple mass of Earth is so huge, and it weighs so much more than the moon that, you know, it's kind of, it's going to be more inward than at the surface. <laughs> yeah. Or even at, from the center. So I guess yeah. you, you wanted to ask something <laughs> yeah. about the sun. Well, I mean, so we were talking about the moon and the earth, but what, like, where does the sun come in? I really like your question. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> giggles. <laughs> 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 okay, yeah. Yeah, no, you bring up a point. So you, you're asking the right question. So the sun. So it's going to play a role in this tide generation. But because, uh, again, it's further from Earth and the moon, the effects that we're going to experience here on Earth and in the oceans is going to be much less. So the resultant tide generating forces are going to be small. But if there's a significant horizontal component, tidal bulges are actually going to be produced. Right. So these forces generate two simultaneous bulges. One on either side of the earth. So from the so if it's the the forces from the moon, you're going to have a bulge created facing the moon and one away from the moon just like with the sun, you're going to have these two tidal bulges on either side of earth as well. And I think this would be a good time to discuss like what types of tides there are because due to the these big uh, ones produced by the the moon and the smaller ones produced by the sun, uh sometimes that they they line up and you get these uh, 
bigger and smaller type of uh, tides. Fun fact, if the Earth did not have a moon orbiting around it, there would still be tides. Did you know that, Brian? Uh, well, now I do. Where <laughs> I knew just by what you just said. No, yeah. So like uh, yeah. because of that, and we know that since we've what we've talked about already is that the, the, the sun actually is exerting its, uh, some sort of force, right? So it has 46% due to that law, the proportions and the distance. But so if Earth did not have a moon orbiting it, there would be still tides on earth caused by the sun however the tides would be again much smaller than they are now and they would not alternate between spring and neap tide conditions i wonder how much that would affect everybody i don't know i don't know <laughs> it'll affect the yeah. onions yeah so you said a fun fact i get to say one so a lunar day is 24 hours and 50 minutes long but a solar day is 24 hours long that would make sense with the the lunar cycles so yeah, a solar day is basically the time between passages over a given meridian on the Earth's surface, and it takes 24 hours. But the lunar day is the time that elapses between passages over the moon on that given meridian on the Earth's surface. And that's where it's 24 hours and 50 minutes of the solar time. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, you do. You sound great. <laughs> okay. So the difference between the two involves the Earth's movement relative to Earth. And since the moon, it moves it moves from west to east relative to our surface here on Earth. And it requires 29.53 days to complete a full orbit. And it moves at an angle of like 12.2 degrees each solar day or every 24 hours. The Earth has to rotate 372 degrees each lunar day. And the time required for Earth to rotate the, an additional 12.2 degrees is 50 minutes. <laughs> dude, See what the I math, wrote like the math. Oh god, I'm just I wrote math, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we just witnessed that on Halloween, right? So this is exactly why we're able to get two full moons in a single calendar month. Okay. So can you explain why we see this maximum tidal range like spring tide occurring during a new moon and a full moon and why we see the minimal the neat tides? occurring like in the first and third quarter. Yeah, so like the, when we when we think about the tides, we can look up to the sky and we can see, I forget the the waxing and waning. It's it's like a waxing crescent. Those are my favorite words. Waning crescent. It's, yeah. like a, <laughs> it's like a twilight series. It's a new moon. It's really saying something to when we get back to these these uh, tidal bulges. I really like this, and this I mean this is one of my favorite ones. But I'm all writing on the board, so it's a lot harder to do this talking, if you will. So, yeah. <laughs> so during a new and full moon phase, so the sun and the moon are going to be nearly aligned to each other. And then this is one of my favorite words. It's syzygy. It's S Y Z Y G G Y syzygy. It's when three planetary bodies are aligned with each other. So I mean we can be in syzygy with whenever it's the moon, Earth, and Uranus. I don't know. But, I mean, it's just when three <laughs> planetary bodies are aligned. But when this happens, think about the lunar bulge and then the solar bulge. So they're going to be a lot they're going to be a lot stronger. And then again, why when we think about the 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 new moon and the full moon, so the 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 new moon that we appear whenever it's a when you can't see the moon, that's because it's in between us and the sun, right? So it's its shadow. And then whenever it is on the opposite side of us, whenever um it's whenever it goes sun, earth, moon, that's when we have a full moon because it's that reflection uh, f back at us. So yeah. you have that that alignment of the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun, and all of its gravitational pull, 
uh, working together. So you get these really high spring tides. So this results in a larger set of tidal bulges because the magnitude of the displacements of the crests above the trough below the still water level are added together, thus creating this greater tidal range. So the spring tide conditions. All right. So when we talk about quadrature, so quadrature is the first and third moon phases. So this is when the sun and moon are at right angles to each other. You just you make an L and a shape yeah. on the up on her forehead. <laughs> What's that one wow. song? <laughs> this is a musical episode. Well, the years start coming yeah, into Hey now, you're an all-star. <laughs> but okay, so that's quadrature. <laughs> quadrature, so you're making these 90 degree angles to one another. So the sun, the moon are at right angles to one another relative to Earth. And this is going to result in destructive interference patterns between the lunar yeah. and the solar uh, tidal bulges because the magnitude of the lunar tidal crest and the troughs are reduced by an amount equal to that solar tide trough and crest respectively. So this minimum tidal range is known as a neap tide. So this is how we get the spring tide and the neap tide. And this is not to be confused with whenever you have the, the, uh, the, the daily tides coming in, which are your, your ebb and your flood, uh, you know, that's, that's actual tide coming in and out. Hmm. Yeah. And like, so we see all this, like definitely based on theory and, and mathematical reasoning, but we also have reality on Earth, and so we have continents. We have, like, the ocean bottom is not just a flat thing that we've talked about before. And point. they'll influence, yeah, they'll influence, like, the motion of the tide. And I think of, I think of, um, or it makes me think of, like, a spillway or, a, or um, like, a weir to control water flow. Okay. Usually at the end of those, you'll have what's called baffle blocks. And what that does is it disrupts the water flow, and so it, it interrupts that free movement. And that's kind of what the continents do and also the ocean bottom topography. And it'll break internal waves within the tides will break on the shallower water and they'll disrupt the smooth flow. And so you have all these different physiographic factors that affect just that simple tidal bulge model that we just discussed. Yeah. And I mean, I can't even, I don't know how many there are, but it, you have considerable effects when you try to mess with the flow of water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, a little side note. So internal waves are really cool. So if you ever do like a, a density experiment with temperature and then you yeah, have like, yeah. if you if you separate out the water and then you have hot water on one side, then you have room temperature water and then uh, ice cold water on one side and then they're isolated and then you lift up the slabs and you, I mean, you would, you would dye the, the, the hot water red and the cold water blue, but they don't mix. So you get like this Colgate toothpaste type of thing, but you can see these little internal waves that are really, 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 really fascinating to watch. I, I need to, uh, po I'll post a picture because I do this experiment in lab whenever we're face to face, but you can see these little internal waves of the, the density differences. But so yeah. anyways, I don't mean to digress. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I'm going to come sit in because that's, <laughs> that's Oh amazing. yeah. No. So like last week, I, I don't think I ever answered you or I, I think uh, someone mentioned to me that I never answered you about, uh, I guess, auditing my class. So, I mean, if you want to sit, I think it would be more interesting if we did it in person, but if yeah. you wanted to <laughs> sit in on my lectures, I'll give you the link. <laughs> cool. I'm down. Yeah. So we, yeah, so these, these things that we talked about, they can disrupt or interrupt, I guess, the free movement. And so we get different tidal patterns, like you were kind of talking about, yeah. such as diurnal, diurnal, diurnal to urinal. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> That's where you play swords. Semi, <laughs> sword diurnal. <fight. laughs> 
and mix. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, I mean, if yeah. anyone doesn't know, so, I mean, uh, out there, so diurnal or diurnal, it just means daily. So, you're going to have daily tides. You can have semi-diurnal, which are going to just be, mean, twice daily. And then I then uh, the mixed tides, it's going to just mean twice daily that have unequal high and low tides. So, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, no, you're good. Yeah, like diurnal is one high, one low, right? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And then the semi-diurnal is two high tides and two low tides yep. per day. And then the mix is two high tides and two low tides per lunar day. Throughout most of the month, the period will be like 12 hours and 25 minutes, but there may be a few days when the it's 24 hours and 50 minutes. So yeah. Diurnal, so go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no. So I was saying, so it goes back to the lunar day. You don't have tides every 12 hours. You have them every 12 Mm. hours and 25 minutes. And especially if you have two, right? So then you would have uh, them come. So it's, it's going to move. And then I think that's what I was trying to get at earlier. It like the so it's going to be 28 days for the lunar month rather or the 29 for the lunar month and that's why it shifts in our sky and it's not always in the same place at the same time like the sun is anyways go ahead or is that it no that's, yeah okay that's, yeah that's no but I I, so, <laughs> no 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 and that and that's good but like so i think we're on to something here but like what i what i think is interesting is um and i always get tongue-tied when i try and explain this when it comes to the mixed tidal patterns they're tricky so you have a low tide and you have a high tide but you have that that mixed and it's they're not they're not equal anyways like you have square yeah so you have a a low low tide you have a low high tide you have a high high tide and then you have a high low tide so (laughs) yeah so it could give you tired head quite easily so we've talked about what tides are so we'll give you a few cases of how they're applied into the real world an interesting place is going to be the bay of fundy so this is actually the place in the world that has the greatest tidal range because of the period of free oscillation in the bay of fundy so this is up near, uh, I think, uh, Nova Scotia, up in uh, uh, the northwest in Canada, up in that area. The the Bay of Fundy, it's nearly the same as the tidal period resonance that is uh, produced. So a very large tidal range occurs in the northern end of the, the Menace Bay due to this constructive interference. So the bay also narrows and becomes progressively shallower towards the northern end, which amplifies tidal effects. And then in addition, the, the, the Bay of Fundy, right, is a right curving bay. So the Coriolis effect in the northern hemisphere hemisphere adds to that tidal range so boom i think that's why i Dang. wanted to talk about tidal forces and yeah and the coriolis yeah so i mean we didn't get to this but you tied it all back i i sewed it surgically but it's <laughs> a week apart or you missed weeks. my pun i i did another one. Oh my on goodness brian brian <laughs> you're my hero today you're my hero today i, I promise yeah. So another cool thing is the spawning cycle of the grunion. Dude, I, I like this story. I'm, let's do let's do this. Stories by Brian. So so yeah. So a grunion is a like a fish, fish. and they they lay their little egg on the beach. And so this the grunion spawning cycle is closely related to the rise and fall of the tide. Shortly after the maximum spring tide has occurred, these little fish come ashore and they assure surely they're rural shirl. Rural, <laughs> the rural shirl, <laughs> the interesting case of the grunion. Yeah, they bury their eggs in the sand and in the summer months, the higher tide occurs at night. As the high tide come higher each night, the sand is eroded and after the maximum height of the spring tide has occurred, the higher tide that occurs each night will be a little lower than the previous tide. During these like decreasing tidal height time periods, the neat tide conditions that we talked about yeah. the sand is then deposited back on the beach and the grunion depend on this pattern of like the beach sand deposition and erosion 
for their little baby fishies to come out and be successful and go back to life. <laughs> Stories by Brian. No, I and I think that's 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 fascinating that internally, right? So like, yeah, like they're like, oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna time this perfect. We gotta we're gonna fertilize these eggs and we're gonna wait till the high high tide to go up there. And then you know what I'm saying, like, and then yeah. uh, then it's just they time it just right for whenever you have the tides coming back out that it's going to deposit that sand. I it's um, like Earth's little calibration all together. Yeah, I think like sea turtles also do that, right? Do, do they? I I, I don't, yeah, um, maybe not. I don't, I don't I don't I don't I don't don't get me with the sea turtles. Like uh, <laughs> I know that they the turtles they use a some sort of a magnetic something what? in their brain. That's wow. how they're able to, yeah. And then they do the currents. I don't know, but I'm not a specialist when it comes to the turtles. So, but I mean, <laughs> I like, I mean, I think that's that's mind blowing. And then also, I, I think just quickly we can just go over. Basically, can we harness that energy that is free? So it's not costing any energy to move this water through things. So uh, they've built these uh, tidal power plants. Works by trapping seawater in an estuary during high tides, and then using that water to turn turbines, that's the word, and generate electricity as that water is going to be moving back out to the sea uh, during low tide. So a plant situated at the entrance of an estuary, right, would be able to allow the water to enter the estuary during an incoming high tide for a mixed tidal pattern. So this occurs twice daily and then use that water for electricity generation as it flows out through the power plant. So the factors that are going to increase the usable tide generating potential of an estuary include large surface areas of an estuary, so more water, and then a large tidal range, higher potential energy, and then if we had a narrow mouth to the sea, so greater ability to channel this water. So these are kind of some factors that influence in the creation if they were going to make this more wide spread but then i guess you'd have to be next to an estuary right yeah and like it's really awesome because like you said it's almost energy that's just waiting for us because we don't really have to work the mechanics of its natural state and as a renewable energy resource that's like that's amazing i mean we the amount of work that goes into harnessing that is is negligible but i guess it would it would cost a lot more right yeah to set up the whole infrastructure of this and maybe that would be a downfall of it but uh-huh. i mean i think of that and but then i'm our infrastructure to have like electricity like coal plants and like nuclear like that's that in itself is expensive so yeah considering and then, where we are like right now in this world and looking for other ways to yeah. get off of fossil fuels like this is awesome we I, I hope that people in charge that are way above our pay grade are really pushing this yeah no and then finding better ways to implement it i mean i just where it, ha- it would have to go through all of the different ecosystems if you will yeah. and what are the the possibilities like i know what so people that live around those huge transformers are like oh it gives you cancer so i mean like uh, yeah but I don't know if that's true. I'm just saying it's like one of those things to look into. So, You're right. Like I would assume that if they did this, they would have to negate their effects on the ecosystem there. Because I know like coastal environmentalism is a big deal. We try to restore its natural, I guess, just how it's laid out and what, what animals thrive there and how it would be normally in nature. Um, we're like on the Gulf Coast. We They're trying to engineer natural oh, ecosystems yeah. because we've screwed them up so badly. What is uh, the, the mangroves, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's so many interesting facts about that, like how much have been destroyed since. But if, if we want to get into uh, some more oceanography topics, we can do that if you want to. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I figured we we're going to introduce something new to y'all, so we'll hope you like it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Mineral minutes. Mineral. Mineral. Minerals. <laughs> so that was pre-recorded. <laughs> Minerals. So uh, just a quick story about that. So when I was recording that, I was in class like the where I was the student. And I thought we were leaving a Zoom meeting. And... So I thought I'd press exit, but I didn't. So I'm I'm playing that just that beat in the background and I'm like getting into character to try to be sexy with minerals. And I and, and I'm just in my own world, I'm like, mm, minerals. <laughs> Uh, and I and I look up and my teacher and another uh, call a classmate of mine are just like looking back at me and I'm like, oh, I'm awkward. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like your meeting has ended. Yeah, and they kicked me out. So one more time, just for it, <laughs> just wait till the end of it. It's so mineral minutes, mineral, mineral, mineral minutes. Mm. Minerals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's when I look up. So, okay, so today's mineral minute to you is brought to you by the nickel sulfide Miller Lite. Actually, it's called Miller Lite. Miller Lite. Miller Lite? No, Miller Lite. <laughs> no, I know Miller. Another pun. Another pun. Three for me today. All right, we got. We have one minute. Yeah, we have a minute. Get through this mineral minute. So, Miller Millerite is NIF, and it has common impurities such as iron, cobalt, and copper. It's Type locality is from the Jacquemo Barlovi Berry District in the Czech Republic. This mineral was named by Wilhelm Heidinger in 1845 in honor of, get this, right? So this is an interesting fact. So it was in honor of William Hallows Miller, a professor at the University of Cambridge who first studied the crystals. So Miller, actually the Miller Indices is also named after Professor Miller. Thank you for all the headaches, Professor Miller. Yes, and your indices. (laughs) Yeah. And Millerite is found, its habit is basically radiating in jack straw clusters of shiny little metallic acicular crystals. This mineral is pale, brass yellow with an iridescent tarnish and a greenish gray. It has a metallic luster and it streaks greenish black. It has a hardness of 3 to 3.5 and its specific gravity is 5.3 to 5.5 measured and 5.374 grams per cubic centimeter calculated. Millerite has irregular uneven fracture and its perfect cleavage is on the planes of 1011 and 0112. Optical data of the Millerite suggests that it has a strong anitropism and weak pleochrism. It's trigonal in crystal structure and its class is 3M ditrogonal pyramidal. Millerite is a low temperature mineral which occurs in sulfitic limestones and dolostones and is a late forming mineral in nickel sulfide deposits. Millerite. <laughs> Tune in for next week's sponsor, Tug to Bright. That's our mineral for next that, week. Tug to bite? I don't know. I just randomly picked a mineral. So that's, that's the one we're going to be talking about next week. And that was brought Amazing. to you by another <laughs> mineral. <laughs> that's <is> so good. <laughs> okay. So let's wrap up some loose ends. From, oh my God, I'm crying. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right, so so let's wrap up some loose ends from a few episodes ago, Brian. All right, um, so we had a question, and that question was, does the Pacific Ring of Fire affect the San Andreas fault line? And if the ring does affect the fault line, what are the worst-case scenarios that fault had a major earthquake? Kind of like what they call the big ones. And would California, or a portion of it, 
fall off into the ocean. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's, a good, that's a good point. So more serious talk when it comes to San Andreas Fault. We've talked about it briefly before. So the tra- it's a transformed fault that has made its way onto the continent, uh, running from a southeast to northwest for nearly uh, about 800 miles. Uh, so, but yeah. anyway, so this is leading to the western portion of Cali being moved north to the northwest, and then the rest of North America with relationship to it is going to be more to the south and southeast. So research, the going back to the question so the research of that area and of the fault is going to be more focused on trying to be able to predict the location of the next big one but because uh, there have been big ones in the past right so we know that there have been big ones so it's not just when's the big one going to happen because they've had big ones happen in the past and studying that they can kind of get this idea of maybe where the next one so they do it in percentages but off the top there was I believe one in 1906 that likely released the strain that had been building up in that area during the past 200 years near San Francisco and then to the south of there in 19 uh, or in 1857 sorry that there was a 300 kilometer section of the San Andreas fault actually that ruptured and it is known as the Fort Tejon earthquake so the this Mm. area is the actual the USGS the United States Geological Survey gives it a 60% probability of producing a major earthquake in the next 30 years the the next big one that we've we've actually witnessed happen like in real time they call it the world series earthquake because it was seen on tv during the 1989 world series between the san francisco giants and the oakland athletics so they were across the bay from one another so there was a, a seismic gap showing i think it's the the loma peretti seismic gap that previously showed no seismic activity so you could assume that there was this buildup of the strain and then it, it suddenly released and then subsequent you could see the it fill in that gap uh, so there's one seismic gap right now that suggested that it could be a big one, but an actual date is where the problem lies. So we see that right now. Um, probably there's a portion in the southernmost part of the San Andreas Fault that there's been no release of the strain, and it's been building up in that area for the past 300 years or so. So in terms of predicting the next big one, I think it's still the the, the San Francisco area has always has it always has a probability of having a big one. It's just yeah. where where is it going to be? So yeah, like I, I thought like when that question was asked, I immediately thought of San Francisco. But I mean, we have to think that thing is like what you said, like 800 miles long. Yeah. And so like as pressure is released on certain points, like you might see increased pressure elsewhere because it is that transformed fault. And that like to answer part of the question, like, yes, the ring of fire does affect that fault line because it's that's the transform boundary. You have the plate going underneath the continent, but you also have that northwest motion. And so it's that's what's acting on the San Andreas is that slip there. So I think like it was also like, would we, I'm kind of jumping to like the last part of that, but would it fall into the ocean? No, like we would, we would see it transverse along the motion of that plate right like yeah. we would we would see it go northwestward so we wouldn't see it fall off into the ocean it would be more up like by alaska yeah i think eventually that's where it's going to end up yeah so i think that answers that portion of it but dealing with like what the consequences of that would be i mean if we had it in if we had it in san diego or if it was in san francisco like we point out like there's there could be a lot of life loss but i think of engineered structures so luckily a lot of the buildings there engineered them and come a long way 
in their design. So they're meant to take some of that force. But unfortunately, sediments that are laid down, like like sand that comes in off like deltas and in fluvial environments, it's laid down as is. What happens is when those sand bodies, when they get impacted by these earthquakes, they end up behaving if they have the right density and enough force on them, they behave more fluid. And we call that liquefaction. In my line of work, we actually do risk assessments on if we add seismicity around a dam, right? Yeah. We would look at that and we would look at, uh, okay, well, what kind of sand do we have there? Like, is it quartz? And like, what's the grain size? How's it laid down? How thick are the beds? And how thick is the whole sand body or fluvial deposition there? And then we can try to evaluate the risk because if you get all that sand moving and it's a significant amount, you could just slide the dam down no, and then you're releasing all this water that not only the, the earthquake would cause damage to human life, right? You kill people just by that no, sheer yeah. force, but also the liquefaction affecting dams. That's just, what, is, what was that one, the day after tomorrow? Like, I just think of stuff like that. <laughs> like that no, but that liquefaction is 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 a, a unique thing. So like, if you're just standing on it and you just start sloshing water and you have that unconsolidated sediment underneath it and then that, that water just kind of like, that reduces that friction, right? And then it starts moving and you can get these whole structures that just fall into, into that sand and water mixture. And then when the shaking stops, the ground goes back to solid, which is, I think, really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, a moving body of quicksand is what no, I think. yeah, and then as soon as, but when the vibrations stop, it ends. Yeah. And then you get like these little yeah. mud volcanoes. Yeah, and they've seen that like Japan, like, uh, and like I think also in China, they had some really severe things happen with a dam out there in both of those places that liquefaction like ended up just decimating a whole like half of a city or something. It's just terrifying. <laughs> No, yeah. So I mean, it's nuts. And then, yeah. So from all of that, it's it's not going to. I think I think I'm just going to recap on what you said. The idea of California falling off into the ocean is a silly premise, just due to the fact that yeah. it's it's a it's a con it's continental crust. It's not just going to like oh well, I'm just going to fall over now, right? So I mean, like that's yeah. just so. What's what's more than likely going to happen? Well, it is going to happen in about 10 million years. You alluded to it earlier that Los Angeles and San Francisco, they're actually going to be neighbors. So then in uh, another 50 million years or 60 million years in total, we're going to have Amasia. I think they've actually named the continent whenever wow. you have uh, North America and Eurasia Clyde. It's going to be called Amasia. But so anyways, it's going to continue its track northward and be up near Alaska. And but, you know, who's Who's to tell that you're not going to have some kind of Wilson cycle open up and create something? I don't know. Predictive powers. I don't know. <laughs> so hopefully that answered your question. But I think the more important, it's going to, we're going to need to worry about flooding in California more so than yep. it uh, in the next, you know, couple hundred years versus uh, a couple hundred million years. I think that one was that one. What you're leaving me out to dry, Brian? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was trying to think of anything else that we didn't touch on, and I I think we answered the question. But yeah, I guess. Uh, lastly, uh, let's talk about the Yosemite Valley creation. So I got an awesome email from uh, one of our listeners again in Ohio. Uh, he emailed me. He found me somehow. I guess we haven't put our email address anywhere. So if you want to get a hold of us, our 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 official email address is going to be. G Geology, O-T-R, at gmail.com. Or you could find me at, I think it's james.hobbs at mavs.uta.edu. Or, 
wherever. So you can get a hold of me anywhere. But uh, I appreciated his. Uh, he was a, a rock climber, and he wanted to know about rock formations, and he wanted to know that uh, about the Yosemite Valley and how it was created. And then, so we're going to talk about, I mean, it's it's a very, it's not an easy answer. So I think it's going to warrant its own episode and later, but we can briefly talk about it, about this. So did you want to lead it off, Brian? Yeah, I can. So geologic history of like Yosemite and in greater part, like the whole Sierra Nevada mountain range and, and topography there, it's basically you have two parts, the deposition of sediment and then metamorphism of that and the deformation of those, so like folding and faulting of those rocks, and then a later emplacement of granitic rocks that came in the Paleozoic, Mesozoic, and then secondly, you have uplift, erosion, and glaciers really ended up taking a big toll and shaping it to what we have now. So first off, I think the oldest rocks in the Yosemite area are the Cambrian Age, and that was a bunch of like sediment in the sea adjacent to the continent at that time. And then the Mesozoic and like Triassic time, you first you get your first emplacement of granite in granitic bodies. You think of like Yosemite sits in the Sierra Nevadas, and it's basically it's this huge asymmetric mountain range. And what happened is you had all these igneous intrusions happen over time. And we call that like, because it's such a long, like it's like 50 to 80 miles wide. I think it's all, it's a batholith. Yeah, so, so it's, it's igneous intrusion. Yeah, yeah it's, oh no, I was just saying like, yeah, the batholith. So you have these plutons of the magma chambers and they're, they're so the, all these rocks, they they were cooling when we think about it. They, just because they're exposed now, this is not where they, where they cooled. So they cooled in place in the ground. So they're going to be this, this phaneritic intrusive igneous body. But the idea is like, it's this huge long chain of these plutons from a subduction happening of the... Is it the Farallon plate? Because I, I, I always get the timing of it. I think that's right. I think it's yeah. the Farallon plate, but then it was later the rest of that going under a shallow descent ended up creating that uh, basin and range, but I don't want to get ahead of you, so. No, yeah, you're fine. Yeah, like you were talking about, like, so as these crystallized under Earth and cooled, what they did is because they were heated and they basically pushed up the sediment that was set there, and that metamorphosed a lot of that sediment. Over time, that got eroded away, but these the granite bodies, and they're not all granite. We should think about that for a minute. Like Because it's such an evolving magma body, you have different compositions. So you have like granite, you have granodiorite, diorite, and quartz monzonite. But like some of the really pretty, like, like half dome, right? Like that was a big granodiorite body. But if you notice, like it has that smooth face on that one side. It yeah. makes me think of here in Texas, we have a little like a lacolith that's smaller than a batholith. And you see that same thing. It has these sheets. And so when it erodes away, you have these slabs of rocks that are just smoothed by weathering. And that's that's what happened there. Half Dome has that sheer face. But on the other side, if you look at it, you can see little sheets that have fallen down or have been eroded on fractures. So do they and call so, that exfoliation? I think so. And it, that would make sense because you also have that in like when you're talking about minerals too, like your exfoliation of, oh, I'm not going to get into that because we're not talking about it. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, no. So um, I think I think from whenever, so you did, uh, whenever you had all of the sediment above it erode away and it kind of was uplifted to be exposed, you're reducing that uh, confining pressure. So it kind of like expands yep. outwards and then it creates these little joints and then you get these, this, the sheeting that happens or exfoliation domes or something like that. Yeah, no, that that's right. It kind of like what we talked about that one day, like it's a uh, more pronounced form of like rebound. And so you'll have these like tension cracks that split yeah. the rocks 
it'll take that whole sheet. So yeah, that's like all the pretty stuff that you see there because all the erosion that's happened after these is all the granite. Like you see mainly granitic bodies. Um, and that's what like this guy that sent us, he's a rock climber. That's the stuff y'all are climbing is this really beautiful sheer face granites that are out there. So after like, because of those uplifts, you also had metamorphic rocks in the foothills and along the eastern margin of the summit area. And there's remnants of ancient sedimentary volcanic rock that were also deformed. Once those metamorphic rocks, like I said earlier, that were formed above the granitic rocks were eroded away by climate and water and all that. But it's basically Yosemite centered on deeply dissected granitic bodies. So they, other than the granite, like metamorphic rocks, are they only occupy like percent of the total area you're mainly looking at igneous stuff yeah so that so it's dissected so whenever you had that uplift and you had these the rivers come through i know we've talked about that when we talked about the sedimentation process right so you have these the running water comes at the heads of wherever it's starting to come down and you start getting this weathering so it's cutting down and it's v-shaped right so that would be that would be indicative of just of the uplift so as you had the the more uplift happening it cut down deeper and then i think there was like subsequent like ash falls and lava flows that would fill and then it would move around to different spaces but it was dissected but then what happened is that as you had this continual uplift that it it allowed for it to start forming these alpine glaciers and this is not it doesn't have anything to do with the the last ice age because this was this happened what 10 million years ago these were alpine glaciers and the area we can see this in in the in the valleys right so the the valleys are like u-shaped and that's that's due to that water or not the water but the the glaciers moving Moving through it and scouring out this landscape. And then also at Yosemite, what we see here are waterfalls. The waterfalls are from these hanging valleys. So when you would have these, um, if you will, the these little, well, I mean, they're still glaciers, right? But then they meet into the, the bigger glacier in the middle that's creating out this huge U-shaped trough. But yeah. it's, it's continually eroding as well. But whenever the glacier goes away, you have this, this offset that creates these waterfalls. That's another evidence mm-hmm. that uh, glacier happened and then also you have I think they're called tarns from their cirques the these little wherever you have the 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 alpine glacier starting at the peaks they create these little uh, circular depressions and then when that melts they form these little tarns and then interesting the the I think the the valley itself used to be a an, a, a proglacial lake but it's been covered up. So that's going to be the the fate of all the a lot of the lakes up there. Uh, now, as you have this continued sedimentation, it's these lakes are going to be uh, eventually infilled with sediment, and then it's just going to be a mm-hmm. meadow that you see in the bottom of that. But so uh, some of the cool ones, you talked about Half Dome. I guess another one would be the El Capitan, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think that, that face was from the, the glaciers just being completely eroded. And I'm sorry that we don't yeah. have all of the greatest answers for this. We wanted to get into like more of the stories behind it, but we were doing other things too. So, but like <laughs> we will get back to it whenever we do our whole about that area. But yeah, so I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the outline of it. If we misspoke on anything, please let us know. We'll take criticism. <laughs> and then if you want to call in and tell us about your rock climbing stories and some of the rocks that you see up there in Ohio and Kentucky, we'd love to, to hear about that as well. Lastly, last little bit of news. We're finally going to debut it, uh, Brian. Yes. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. We're going to do another, that freaking rocks. Freaking rocks. Drum roll. <laughs> Go, three, two, one. <laughs> Thank you.
Yeah. Yeah. So that was Dude, fun. You got, you got some fast fingers there, man. No, I feel like, yeah. no, that's slow. That's fast to me. I'm over here. You heard me. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> <Remember> <laughs> no, I, yeah, no, I really wanted yeah. to, I really wanted to, I really wanted to play that, but I didn't. <laughs> no. So, uh, on this edition of that for good rocks, uh, I guess just a little bit about the process that we did with that, even though it took us like, how long did it take us, Brian? Oh God. Since uh, the beginning. Like yeah, I think it was so, like second episode, first episode or something. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it was really with Dale that he was like, it's got a rock. And I was like, okay, well, it's got a rock. So, I mean, it's at least been since episode two. So yeah. seven episodes ago, we're closely approaching 10 episodes. So then we'll be legit then. Oh yeah. We just wanted something that rock. Tell us more about your process. Like, so I posted on our Instagram kind of like the, the, the riff that I had. And then you said, I'm going to make it dark. Like the Mafic magnesium iron rich <laughs> minerals. Wow. I said that I'm such a nerd dude. Yeah. You said, I'm going to oh. bring the ultra Mafic. <laughs> well, it didn't turn out as dark as I thought, but I wanted to, because you play a lot heavier, more energetic music. And so I was like, well, I got to throw in like what I normally do. And so I tried to make it kind of ambient over top and it ended up sounding more like a, like a horn section. <laughs> then, but yeah, like it's just these slow swells with like a lot of gain. And I just, I cranked it and just let it sit over top of everything. But I think... I like it because it really embodies both of our styles. No, and I and 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 given the the time constraints that because you don't want like a a one minute kind of introduction to this every time. So like with the fifteen seconds that we had together, I feel like it it was it was enough to get what we were getting at. Like it's it's yeah. a little bit of my flavor, a little bit of your flavor. So it's like. Um, I guess I'd be a granite and then you would be like a, you'd, you'd be a gabbro. And then like our yeah. music baby is kind of a diorite. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah. But, but it was fun. So I mean, like basically <laughs> I, he's like recorded. So I was like, okay, I recorded it, but it, I didn't do anything keeping it in time. Like with the metronome. So I was like, good luck with that. I tried putting drums on top of it and it just didn't work. <laughs> Cause I'm yeah. like, I can't, I was like, I think I changed like the time signature. Like, like, I don't know the whole thing through it. it <laughs> no, was, I liked it cause it kept me on my toes. I was like, okay, uh, I had to like my delays tap. And so I was like, okay, I got to muddy up my delay. So that it's not <laughs> like binging off in weird time. So it was, it was fun. It was fun. And then I think together we might start working on a, a actual legit intro. So it's not different every time. So we can get you yeah. comfortable with that. And then lastly, what we wanted to close it on was kind of an idea that we've been floating uh, with this episode. I mean, like with this portion of our episode, because we do like to talk science and geology, but we also like to talk music because I mean, that's I mean, it's rock and rock and it's geology on the rock. So, I mean, it's like the the trifecta. It's it's that it's that distance cubed when it goes back to the the moon and the dis or the sun yeah. and the distance. Right. So it's all a proportional thing. That's why it's smaller at the end. But all the weights on the so this is the weight of everything the episode right now is the berry center i'm trying to relate it all well that. done well done <laughs> and that was on the, the the tips of my toes i don't know what i'm doing twinkle toes so we've been floating this idea around of how about you you set it up so we are musicians and we have we write our own music and we like that ability in different platforms to share our music but there's a lot more musicians than us and we like all music and so we thought it'd be really good to either get submissions or requests to talk about if you have a band or you released a new song or a record that we would listen to it that week prior 
to whatever episode we're doing and chat about your record and what we liked about it and like what maybe what your inspirations were or whatever story you'd like to tell. Yeah. So then would, and then it would be a way for uh, interaction with you as well. So, I mean, if you could do it to where you just want us to talk about it, or if you wanted to actually come on to the show and talk to us yourself, we could do, we could do that. We set it up. Um, it's a fairly easy process. You just call and we, uh, we have a three way. <laughs> okay. There it is. <laughs> 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 oh, there's too much going on over here. I can't. Ah. Okay, anyways, I got to just turn the volume down. If you'd be interested, again, you can email us at geologyotr at gmail.com. Or you can also message us on our Instagram. So is it Geology on the Rocks podcast? Yes. Right? Yeah. So that's, so that's also another way to do it. And that's whatever links to your own social media of your music or whatever. Yeah, and then also, um, I know depending on what 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 avenue you're streaming this through to, like, so the the main where we upload it through is through Anchor.fm, but you can actually message us through there. So I know on Spotify or iTunes or however you get the the podcast, you can if you go to the Anchor.fm, uh, it's the same thing, geology on the rocks. And you can message us that way just so it's clear and you know how to get a hold of us. I think it would be interesting too. I mean, I want to hear from people like Eric, if you're listening to this, I know that you just came out with an album with your your old school punk. The real punk. Yeah. But yeah, so Ben, like, I mean, like we like, um, you know what I'm... Yeah, really, I like it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even have to be like rock technically. Like it doesn't no. bother me. And I actually enjoy listening to other styles. So yeah, no, anything so, to like... Like we, we learn as we do even like the geology stuff on here, but we want to learn more about music and about your music and what makes you rock. Yeah. And it's, I think, a good way to uh, mix the two. So, I mean, if also too, don't be shy out there if y'all are um, earth scientists or any kind of scientist or you are an expert in any kind of sort of earth science, ocean science, any kind of science, and you want to, uh, you think that you have an idea and you want to collaborate with us, we're definitely open to that idea too. And we could have a, have you on as a guest call to everyone. So, but I guess I think, I think we did good with time. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that has been another episode of geology on the rocks. I'm your host, James, the geologist. And I'm Brian Baggin. And stay tuned. And we hope you keep it on the rocks. Mineral. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.